0: Good morning listeners and welcome to Sacred Space, you must limit 102. My name is John Keely. Thank you again for joining me this morning. And this is the 30th of September, the 26th Sunday in ordinary time. A very special welcome especially to those uh, of our listeners who are housebound, those who are lonely, maybe struggling with some health problems this morning, concerned about the worries of the world that we all have from time to time. Thank you again for joining us. And as I have to say here in the program, please be aware that we as the Sacred Space community here in West Limit 102 keep you all in our prayers. This programme of course is broadcast on West Limit 102 local radio at 10am each Sunday morning and again at 11pm uh, Sunday night. Uh, podcasts of this and previous programmes are available on our blog which is www.secretspace102.blogspot.com and also on iTunes by searching Come and See Inspirations. And again, if you want to contact us by email, you can do so by emailing sacredspace102 at gmail.com. Or you can text us, and that's 087 6088667. That's 087 6088667. And again, thanks a lot for joining me and the rest of the gang here And it's Sunday morning where we try to bring you some good news. Uh, the good news of the Gospel, but also some good news that's happening throughout the Catholic world. Um, we'll be back to normal, hopefully, next week. Shane, um, Lorraine, and myself couldn't really coordinate our diaries over the last few weeks, but next week, hopefully, we'll be back uh, to a normal programming. I hope people enjoyed uh, the the World Meeting of Families um, recording that we brought you last week by Cardinal Tego entitled uh, The Throwaway Society. And to kind of take a reminder, this really started off a bit in the 1930s when designers encouraged people to get rid of perfectly good items because they were not fashionable. Because, in fact, as far as they were concerned, they were obsolete. And so it became culturally acceptable by the 1960s to throw away perfectly good items so as we can buy new fashionable goods, which, of course, were obsolete tomorrow. And, of course, this didn't just hand, uh, stop there. Cardinal Tegel reminded us that the idea of the throwaway society extended beyond, uh, beyond goods. It, it extended to all aspects of society. It went on to morals, respect, family, and even human life. If you want to know more or listen to it again, I repeated that program last week. Again, go on to our blog, sacredspace102.blogspot.com or come and see Inspirations. You can get us there on iTunes. Or go onto the website, the World Meeting of Families website, worldmeetingoffamilies2018.com This morning I'm going to bring you another recording. Again, very really important one as far as I'm concerned. It, 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 was, uh, it was presented by Dr. Mary Aiken. And uh, Dr. Mary um, gave a presentation entitled Turning Technology to the Greater Good. This indeed is important, I I believe, for listeners of all ages, grandparents, myself, uh, parents, and indeed those uh, of our young um, members of society who are and new technology quite a bit, uh, whether it be Facebook, Instagram or whatever it might be these days, Dr. Mary has some very good tips and very good warnings actually to remind us uh, of of the dangers of technology, but also turning it to the greater good. So join us in part two and part three where we'll bring you that recording of Dr. Mary Aiken. But in the meantime, I'd like to pray a spiritual communion prayer Especially for those of our listeners who can't receive Jesus at Mass this morning, they'd love to love to go to Mass, but for some reason or other, they can't get to Mass. Which just brings me to the point: maybe there is a neighbour of yours out there who'd like to go to Mass but has no access. Uh, maybe has no car to drive them there. Maybe we could think about offering them a drive to Mass um, somewhere within the locality. Just an idea. But in the meantime, for those uh, for those of our listeners who can't receive Jesus at Mass this morning. This is a spiritual communion prayer that we that we usually pray each Sunday morning. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. So we'll go for a commercial break and come back and join us again in Part 2 and Part 3 where we we'll listen to Dr. Mary Aiken who's going to present for us uh, the well the Families uh, talk she gave, Turning Technology to the Greater Good. So we'll see you again in Part 2. Sacred Space So welcome back again to the second part of Sacred Space. My name is John Keely. At this point now I'd invite listeners to sit back and listen to talk by Dr. Mary Aiken who spoke at the World Meeting of Families recently, and the title of her presentation was Turning Technology to the Greater Good. See, it's good for all of us to listen to what Mary has to say. So let's hear this. And so now it's my pleasure to welcome
1: Dr. Mary Aiken. Okay, good evening, everybody. I hear my competition is mass and everybody getting something to eat after mass. So we're going to start and people will be filtering in and out because I don't want to keep anybody here too late. So I'm a cyber psychologist and uh, this evening I'm going to talk about the impact of technology on humankind and I'm going to look at how we can turn technology towards the greater good. But before I can talk about the positives to do with technology, I have to touch on some of the negatives. Now, when I'm speaking about technology or writing about technology, often I get criticized for pointing out the problems. And the reason that I point out the problems with technology is because there's an army of marketeers out there telling us it's all good. My job is to introduce balance into the scientific and academic debate and say, well, actually it's not all good. Here are the problems. And that way we can meet in the balanced center. So as a cyber psychologist, I'm absolutely pro-technology. I spend a disproportionate amount of my time online In fact, I once took a test for internet addiction, and yeah, my name is Mary, and I'm an addict. I completely failed the test. So, this evening, I'm going to be talking about when human behavior changes online. I'm going to talk about the impact of technology on the developing child, which in the context of the World Meeting of Families is very important. I'm going to talk about the problems young people and families encounter, And then when we've covered that area, I'm going to talk about solutions and moving towards the greater good. Now, some of the content I'll be talking about might be a little distressing uh, for very young people. So I hope we don't have anybody too young in the audience. I hope if they're young, that they're very young and they don't understand some of this, but we can't not actually look at what is problematic in an age of technology. So, as I said, I'm a cyber psychologist, and cyber psychology is the study of the impact of technology on human behaviour. So, my primary focus is on internet psychology, but I also look at artificial intelligence, uh, intelligence amplification, mobile devices, networking devices. And in terms of the cyber behavioral sciences, I mean, cyber psychology is a part of applied psychology. It's an advanced discipline within uh, psychology. And the prediction is that it will enjoy exponential growth. So the interest in the subject will continue to grow because of the rapid acceleration of internet technologies and the unprecedentedly pervasive and profound influence of the internet on human beings. So I will make a copy of my deck available afterwards. There's a very young member of the audience. So, <laughs> so, and whoever the parent is, there's a lot of good content in this for raising a baby in an age of technology. So I like this slide because it shows the, that uh, symbiotic relationship between the real world and the cyber world. And this quote from Slane, claims for the independence of cyberspace are based on a false dichotomy. Physical and virtual are not opposed. Rather, the virtual complicates the physical and vice versa. So what happens in cyberspace impacts on the real world. And what happens in the real world impacts on cyber. So... I'm gonna talk briefly about some state and traits online. So this is in the behavioral sciences, how do humans manifest online? So one of the most profound changes that is affected is that of anonymity. Anonymity is a superhuman power. If we think back to the age of mythology and to the power of invisibility, it's the power of invisibility online But with that superhuman power comes great responsibility. Then we have the ODE, the online disinhibition effect. And it dictates that people do things in a cyber context online that they would not do in the real world. And I suppose the real world equivalent is the idea of being inebriated or being drunk in terms of not fully being in control of your behavior. Then we have self-presentation online, how we present ourselves. I mean, in this group here, you are not the same person on LinkedIn as you are on Facebook, as you are on WhatsApp. You present different personas, a carefully manipulated and curated version of of self presented in a cyber context. And then we have escalation and amplification online. I've been involved in a dozen different research areas and the one thing that I've observed, and I say observed because I don't have these scientific studies to prove, is that whenever technology interfaces with base human behavior, the result is often amplified and escalated online. And in fact, I wrote a book about it called The Cyber Effect, in terms of this amplification and escalation. Now, human behavior can be amplified in a good way, for example, altruism, but also human behavior can be amplified in a negative way, if you think of cyberbullying or trolling online. So the first thing that we want to do this evening or that I would like to do for you is to actually make you think about online in a different way, a paradigm shift. So this is the real world. We're all here, here together in the room. But when you log on, when you go online, you then are transported to a place, to cyberspace. So have you ever logged on for five minutes just before you go out to dinner and you need to get ready and you've got an hour to go before the taxi comes to pick you up and you want to have a shower and get changed and get ready, and you'll just say, I'll just check my emails for five minutes. And all of a sudden, 40 minutes or an hour has gone past. There's a time distortion effect when you log in and go to cyberspace. And if you think about the words forum, world, these are environments that we go to. And in fact, NATO in 2016 declared cyberspace a domain of operations, a domain of war, acknowledging that the wars of the future would take place on land, sea, and air, and on computer networks. So as a society, we need to pay attention and think of cyberspace as a place. And as soon as we think of it as a place, then we have to think about all of the protections that regulation and governance offer us in the real world. And we have to think about how do we actually then affect those in cyberspace, in this place. So how many people in the audience know what the deep web is? A show of hands? Okay, a couple. How many people in the audience know how to get on the deep web? Okay, one. And I'm not going to tell you how, okay? Do not try this at home, it is dangerous. Because the deep web, first of all, I'll talk to you about in terms of size. So when you think of the internet, okay? Think about the internet. Everything that you know that is the internet is only about 1% of the internet. Everything else, the 99% is what lies beneath dark nets, dark web, within the deep web. And as somebody who works in the area of child protection and children's rights, I'm a professor at UCD, but I'm also the academic advisor to Europol to the Cybercrime Center, and I also work with Interpol with the Specialist Group for Crimes Against Children. So we spend a lot of our time hunting predators and criminals in the deep web, and actually navigating this space because what happens in that part of the web actually impacts on the surface web and what happens on the surface web impacts on the real world. So here's the surface web. So what's the difference between the two? Well, the surface web is everything that is searchable using standard search engine protocols like Google. And the deep web is everything else that you can't search using these engines. Now, you've got a lot of content there, for example, medical records or patent applications, but also within the deep web, you have the dark web, and the dark web is made up of a series of dark nets where criminal population flourish, where child abuse material is traded, where the worst excesses of humanity and humankind manifest in this space. You know, as a specialist in forensic psychology, and as somebody with a background in forensics, the one word we are never allowed to use is evil. Because evil is considered in science as a primitive construct. But effectively, Make no mistake about it, evil is alive and well and flourishing and thriving on the deep web. And specifically on nets within the deep web. And the thing that's very worrying is, those of you who have children who are young teenagers, they know how to navigate their way into this space. And increasingly in law enforcement we're finding young people in this very, very bad neighborhood. So this is a menu from the hidden wiki, which is a way once you use certain protocols of navigating this space, and you'll see on this menus pointing to, click here for assassins for hire, click here to get hardcore drugs that can be delivered to a PO box of your choice, And in Europol, we have a principle that we call C-A-A-S, Crime as a Service Online. And those who traffic in drugs, some of you might be familiar with with, uh, Silk Road, which is one of these darknets that operates on the deep web. And they're selling hardcore drugs to anybody and everybody that wants to actually buy them. And this place is beyond the law. And I get very concerned in an age of technology, when we have anonymous domains that are effectively beyond the law? How are we possibly going to have a civil society, a civil and just society, when some domains operate beyond the law? So I want to talk to you about factoring the human into the equation talking about physical behavioral psychological and affective and motivational aspects of technology and why we engage with technology in certain ways i also want to factor in the impact of this technology on the individual in terms of psychology on the group in terms of sociology and effectively and on society in general and There's a great um, uh, expression from Michael Cito who said that he's a forensic psychologist. And he said, we are living through the largest unregulated social experiment of all time. A generation of kids who have been exposed to the worst excesses of the net. So if we think about children and technology We've seen a huge increase in the ownership of smartphones. 32% of eight to 11 year olds now have a smartphone. Uh, Bill Gates said that he wouldn't give a smartphone to a child under the age of 14, and I would tend to agree with him. 16% of three to four year olds have their own tablet or devices. This is a UK study. And 3% of five to seven year olds have a social media profile. That's on Facebook or YouTube. And we see young children who are very proud and their mothers are very proud of their seven-year-old who has their own YouTube channel. But this seven-year-old is generating content that certainly will just go out there on the web but will also be, be harvested by those who have a deviant interest in a child. And that presents great risk to the child. So, in terms of cyber babies, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends no screen during meals or one hour before bedtime. They recommend no screens for children under the age of 18 months. So, whenever you see a baby in a pushchair with a device in their little chubby fingers, you know you might let the person, or the caregiver, or the parent know that the, that the recommendation is no screens under the age of 18 months. And basically, there is a a gap in the knowledge in terms of the behavioral sciences advising parents and teachers advising parents about age-appropriate use of technology. So back in the day, when everybody in this room was having children or around young babies or teaching young babies, you had a book that was based on Piaget's stages of um, locomotor development. And that said, at six months, your baby should sit up, and at one, they should take their first step. We don't have the equivalent in an age of technology. We do not have scientific guidelines to say, here's how you can get the best out of technology for your child. And it's not just the child's use of technology we have to think about that zone of proximal development around the child and parents and caregivers using technology around the child. The average person checks their phone 200 times a day and touches it two over 2,500 times a day. And my argument is that you are, if you are a parent or caregiver of a young child, then that is... 200 times a day that you have not made eye contact and two and a half thousand times that you have not touched them. And this could be catastrophic for us as a species. Babies need eye contact. Babies need FaceTime and not the app sort of FaceTime. They need real world face-to-face FaceTime. And I'm very pleased to see that Pope Francis is actually very aware of this area and has spoken extensively about the impact of technology on children and also on the family. So this was something that was designed by Fisher-Price, which they called the Activity Seat. I call it the Captivity Seat. This device is labeled as suitable for use from birth. So before the infant has the strength to lift their neck and look away, an iPad is thrust into their visual field. And if that infant is only awake for five hours a day and uh, some Disney video CGI is an hour long, then 20% of their time is spent looking at a a computer-generated graphic. Now, Visual acuity in infants goes from 0 to sort of 100 within the first two years. Do you really want to put this sort of stimulus in front of your child when neural pathways are being formed? And effectively, we don't have the scientific uh, studies to show causation because we can't experiment on this age group. We can't take infants and expose them in this way and have a cohort that we don't expose. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that nothing good can come of that while the infant sight is developing. And effectively, if you think of CGI, it's fake depth perception. So these kids may end up with brilliant screen skills, but can they catch a ball or can they cross the road in terms of judging depth perception? Cyber kids, different age problems manifest at different ages. One of the areas that I work in and I campaign in is the existence of legal, but age inappropriate content online. So that would be uh, pornography, extreme violence, and self-harm content. There are suicide sites that target young girls and normalize, or sorry, uh, self-harm. There are eating disorder sites that will target young girls and actually normalize and socialize eating disorders. There are cutting sites online whereby young people get likes for posting fresh images of cutting or or video of, of bleeding. So to me, this is evil in an age of technology. And countries like Germany actually have takedown notices for all of these sites. We don't have it in Ireland and we don't have it in the rest of Europe. So I'm lobbying the EU at the moment to force these sites to be taken down, to clean up cyberspace. A lot of people talk about the UN Convention and the rights of the child. Well, if you look at the UN Convention and search it, there is no mention of internet, digital, or technology. Why? Because it was drafted and published pre-technology between 1989 and 1990. So again, I'm campaigning through my work at The Hague Justice Portal to actually incorporate the cyber rights of the child. And a child, like the graphic here, has a right to a childhood. Yes, they have a right to an education. Yes, they have a right to access information online. But they also have a right not to be exposed to this content When I'm talking to kids in schools, I explain to them, if they're going to look at extreme violence or look at a beheading online, I explain to them, there is no command delete file for the brain, okay? You can't just dump it once you've seen it. What is seen cannot be unseen. And we see in very experienced people who work in law enforcement and people who actually work in content moderation, we see... Post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of being exposed to extreme content. Can you imagine what it's like for an 11-year-old or 12-year-old to click on this content? So we need early learning netiquette protocols before the children go online, before they get a device. We need to teach them how to navigate this space. I'm somebody in Ireland here who campaigned for a digit on on the issue of the digital age of consent. The government were trying to actually actively lower the age of consent from 16 to 13. And that's the age in Ireland, for those of you from the US, that would be COPA regulations. But the government was trying to lower it to legally emancipate children from their parents at 13 and legally empower the child to be on Instagram or Facebook or WhatsApp or Snapchat without parental permission. And to me, this was subjugating the role of the parent. To me, this was anti-family. And for me, this was actively placing children at risk because they would have no parenting in this space. And I'm sorry, no matter how much the technology companies say that they've moderation buttons and all sorts of services, you cannot outsource parenting. This is an example of extreme content online. So this is called Dark Peppa Pig. This is available on YouTube. And in this episode, Peppa Pig goes on a rampage and murders their family. And you can get this just by clicking on YouTube and and Peppa Pig. And what's happening is when parents use the device as a virtual babysitter, as a virtual pacifier, And if the child is watching Peppa Pig, the algorithms that underlie that platform will serve up another Peppa Pig, another Peppa Pig, another Peppa Pig, and eventually this is where you end up. And I know children who've been traumatized by coming across this content. And this is surface web content. This is on the internet, the surface internet. So with teens, we have a different set of problems. What we've seen, and I'm very worried about it, we've seen an increase in anxiety, a 70% increase in anxiety in the last 25 years. And again, in terms of causation correlation, we can't point specifically to technology or to use of social media or to the things that kids find on the internet or to just living in an age of where we have weapons of mass distraction. But certainly, In terms of future uh, research, there is a complex multifactorial model that we need to investigate because certainly there is a relationship between them. I believe, and we don't have the studies as yet, but I believe that sleep deprivation is central to anxiety, depression, or predisposition to become a victim of cyberbullying. Because if a child, what we see in some studies, that two and five children are getting up during the night to check on their social media, check in on themselves in cyberspace, check in on that highly manipulated and curated self that they have presented online. And therefore, they're waking up exhausted. And if as a young adult you wake up exhausted, then the world seems a much darker place. So... We see increasingly what I describe as cyber juvenile delinquency, and that's pathway between, you know, I talk about a generation of virtual shoplifters. You know, what is the future going to be like when kids have been downloading pirated music from when they're eight or nine, pirated movies from when they're in their teens, and downloading crack software from when they're going to college, you know, these are the people that will be influencing the moral compass of society when we're all in nursing homes and or old folks' homes, and, be, and I worry about that because what we see across the board in student surveys, we see increasing levels of narcissism across the board and decreasing levels of empathy. And what I'm building, building towards is the role and the opportunity for the church for all churches to get involved in this space because there is an absolute vacuum of moral integrity and authority in cyberspace. And I think it's an absolutely wonderful and much needed opportunity for Catholic, for Christian values to manifest in this space. Yeah, vulnerability, nine and 10 young girls unhappy. And we've seen a huge surge in eating disorders most probably linked to the availability of these sites that normalize and socialize this behavior. And we've seen increases in sexting and sextortion. So basically, sextortion, my work as Europol, you you probably don't know what sextortion is, I better explain it. My sister told me, don't take anything for granted, you're not talking to a law enforcement audience. So sextortion is the blackmail of a child, to generate content, to generate images, or to generate video, and then selling that video for profit on the dark web. And effectively, we used to have a whole group, pedophiles who had a sexually deviant interest in the child who were trying to generate this content. But now we have a huge and growing cohort of people who have a commercial interest in the child. And what they do is they entrap and groom the child into generating this content, and then they sell that content commercially online. So when it comes down to it, it's all about access. So I was asked to do a a national radio show the other day, um, because they knew I was speaking at, at this gathering. And effectively, the Pennsylvania report, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, had been, just been published. And they said, well, here we have more from the Catholic Church, more of these legacy issues. You know, we have 300 uh, offenders or allegations of offense, and we have up to 1,000 victims and possibly many more. And they asked me, why would you speak at an event when, when you know, the church has this history in this area? And I said, well, first of all, because this problem is not confined to the Catholic Church, so make no mistake about this, this is endemic, it is everywhere. And also the legacy problems, no matter how atrocious they are and no matter how badly we feel for the victims, those issues have not gone away. I am here to stay, they have moved online, with a much greater population outside of any church, joining in this abuse. And effectively, it's about access. So whether you're a minister in a church, or a Cub Scout leader, or a swimming coach, the reason you're in these positions is because you can get access from a position of authority. Now think about giving children smartphones. What we are doing is we are giving that child access to the online world, but we are giving also the entire online world and all of the criminal, deviant and abnormal population that are in that world, we are giving them access to the child. And one of my hopes is that the church, our church, that has invested so much time and effort in developing safeguarding protocols for children in the real world, that somehow we can transfer that knowledge to cyberspace and help parents in the vetting process. When I was asked to speak here, basically I was sent a whole load of paperwork from the organizers so that I could be vetted. And it was quite an amount of work. There was about 20 things to fill out. And then I had to produce three forms of ID And then I had to go and track down my local parish priest and I had to get the form signed in his presence and then I had to send the forms back into the organizers. So I'm a very busy person. I spend my time traveling the world, working in this area, working with law enforcement, working with government, trying to influence and impact policy that'll actually lead to greater child protection measures. So I wrote back to, I called the organizers and I said, look, I'm an academic advisor to Europol. I've worked with everybody from the FBI to the LAPD to the Met to the Irish police. I have been vetted 20 times over. Do I have to do this? And they said yes. (laughs) So the good news is that the system works. The vetting system works because they were not allowing me to come here unless I had been vetted. And that is a great result. And that's what I mean about safeguarding. So if you want to vet the people that your children have contact with, or if you work in in groups of children, or if you work in schools, or if you work in your local parish, one of the things parents can think about in terms of vetting is sit down with your kids and get them to open up one of their social tech profiles, say for example, Facebook, and one by one go through their contacts, their friends, their connections with them and say, is this person? Okay. <laughs> Tell me about this person. Who are they? How do you know them? And then take it a step further and click on the profile of that person and see what sort of person your child is connected with in cyberspace. So is this what we really want? The future family sitting there in linear clusters, all of them alone, together. In in a study recently, in a UK study, one in 10 parents of children aged three to four agreed that their child knew more about the internet than they do. To me, that is catastrophic. If the parents know less than their three-year-olds, how on earth are the going to parents going to protect their children in cyberspace? And if that's the case, then the state has a duty of care to actually step up, and institutions have a duty of care to step up and to protect children. And at this point in time, this is where we are at this point in time, but what's coming next? The point at which you see companies like Facebook investing in companies like Oculus Rift who make what are called HMDUs, so head-mounted display units, then you know that social tech companies are moving towards virtual reality. And if you think you have problems now calling your children to the dinner table and all of them staring at the phones and you're saying, get off your phones, Wait till you call your kids to the dinner table and this is what they look like. So not only will they be physically immersed in this space, they will also be psychologically immersed in the space. And the problem that we have with technology development in the absence of a generalised moral and ethical code is that the focus is always on this cyber utopian upside they never really stop and think about, well, what about the downside? So immediately, I can predict that if social tech companies like Facebook move to virtual reality, when everything is going well, it will be fantastic. So for example, you can use your virtual reality headset to check in on this lecture, or you can use your virtual reality headset to go to the beach, or you can use your virtual reality headset to go to a party. And you can be there with a couple of hundred people enjoying yourself. But what happens when you have cyber bullying in virtual reality, in a technology mediated environment? What happens when an 11 year old child has 300 people in virtual reality turn on them real time? There is no adult in this room that would be psychologically robust enough to withstand that sort of bullying, there is absolutely and certainly no child that could withstand that. So cyberbullying is not going to go away. And when virtual reality comes, yes, it'll give an augmented, amplified, and better positive experience, but it will also equally and oppositely give an augmented, amplified and much worse negative experience. So when I'm talking about the impact of technology on humankind, everybody says, well, moral panic, you know, when the telegraph was introduced, when the printing press was introduced, when the telephone was introduced. Well, writing was a form of technology, and thousands of years ago, when they first started scratching things on stone or etching them into stone or scratching them out on a slate, there was a moral panic because everybody believed that that would be the end of the great oral tradition of memorizing and reciting content. And guess what? It was. (laughs) So it's not that we have to think about these things as a form of moral panic, but we certainly have to understand what is good about technology and what is problematic. Remember, what is new is not always good. And technology does not always mean progress. So Pope Francis has said that effectively, he does not want to prevent children from playing with electronic devices. But rather, he wants them to find ways to develop their critical abilities and not to think that digital speed can apply to everything in life. And what we're losing in children and young people and also we're losing in adults is the ability to think critically. And critical thinking is one of the best protection mechanisms that we have against fake news. If we lose our ability to think critically, then we will not be best placed to consume this sort of information. So I want to just for one minute conceptualize cyberspace as a continuum. So I talked about cyberspace being a place. Now let's think of it as a continuum, sort of a left to right access. On the left of that space, that continuum, We have the keyboard warriors, the hands-off cyberspace, the the early adopters, the people who believe in libertarian principles of freedom of the internet. And they do not want governance, regulation, or interference from uh, church institutions in that space. They want cyberspace to be this free area on the left. On the far right, we have the social technology companies, we have the device manufacturers, we have the internet service providers, we have all of this tech cohort. And they do not want governance or regulation in cyberspace. Why? Because it costs money. And it affects the bottom line. And these two very distinct and different cohorts are aligned in cyberspace in that they don't want governance and they don't want regulation. But the rest of us, the 99.999% of us and our children, we live in the middle, and we get no say in cyberspace. So my call this evening is that we need to think about ways of taking back cyberspace. If this is where our kids and our young people are going to hang out, then we need to have a say in this space. And effectively, the problem with the internet is that at the moment, it's not fit for purpose for children. There is no shallow end of the swimming pool online. And there are solutions. Now, the software solutions are, people often say to me, oh, parental controls. Fine. So I want you to do one thing when you go, home or back to your hotel tonight, please Google bypassing parental controls. You won't sleep tonight, you'll get a million results, but you know what your kids know. Okay, so it is very easy to get around parental controls. So what we need are hardware and software solutions combined. So I have lectured at the military base at Annapolis to the Cyber midshipmen. I've lectured at West Point to, to the Cyber Cadets there. And effectively, the American military have a very interesting um, uh, creation. They have an intranet within the internet and it's called NipperNet. And their devices only connect to this intranet. And what it is, is a safe space where they can go and do their military stuff and swap their secrets and organize their maneuvers. And the hardware solution is the device only connects there and the software solution is built in there. Why do we have a nipper net for military and yet we cannot create a nipper net safe space for children in an age of technology? The reason is, there's no commercial gain in doing so. But we need to put the onus on those who profit in cyberspace to step up and provide real protection mechanisms for kids there. So towards the solutions, what can we do? First of all, you need to think differently about online, about the internet. Need to conceptualize it in a new way as a space, as cyberspace. And then we need to move towards cleaning up cyberspace. We need to tackle the dark web, and we need to work towards taking down extreme content. We need to demand more from those who profit from social technologies, and we need to work towards eliminating fake news, trolling, cyberbullying, and the worst excesses that the internet has to offer. What can families do? First of all, recognize the impact of technology on the developing child. If you are a parent or a caregiver and you're always consumed by your device, you are neglecting your child. And it's not just the parent, it's the four-year-old, bro- the four-year-old brother or sister who's on their device all the time, they're not playing with the baby. And the eight-year-old boy who's in playing his computer games all the time, he's not playing with the baby. And the 13-year-old who's consumed with Instagram and Facebook, they're not playing with the baby. So the poor baby in the home, hopefully the dog or somebody is looking at the infant. Because otherwise, you know, who's talking to the baby and how's the baby going to learn to socialize? Consider digital detox in the home. So that's, you know, in America, there's a big movement now called the Digital Sabbath. And it's actually no phones on Sunday, no technology, no logging on. And I think that's a really good um, idea. I think it's something certainly that the Catholic Church could look at promoting. Mindfulness and psychology is a whole body of um, literature around mindfulness. And the construct is to be, be present now. So for kids, for parents, for families... Set aside the devices, be present with each other now, and reflect. You know, this is something in Christianity that we know a lot about, reflecting on our thoughts, on our actions, on our deeds. And as I said, technology does not always mean progress. And then as Pope Francis has said, don't let technology replace real-world encounters what can the church do? And I'm sure many of you work in different ways with the church, with the church in your own area. So we can think think about how ethical and moral authority can manifest in cyberspace. We can think about altruism, how to use technology to help others. And we can transpose those real-world safeguarding messages and learnings to cyberspace. And also, as a church, we start we need to start looking to the future. Yes, we have to deal with the legacy issues, but we've got to get to a place where we're not just constantly reacting, but actually becoming proactive and predicting what's going to happen next. And more importantly, what can we do about it? So what can I do as as a cyber psychologist? I travel around the world, this is what I do. I, CBS made a television show based on my work and Patricia Arquette played me in the show. And yes, that still sounds as surreal as it is. That's her playing me. Something hard to get your head around. Me writing lines and those coming out of her mouth, but it was a fantastic experience. It aired in 170 countries and I got an opportunity to bring my message, my vocation to a much wider and global audience. I also wrote a book called The Cyber Effect, and I've brought along some copies. If anybody wants to uh, buy a copy at the end of the talk, I'm happy to stay behind, have a chat, sign it for you. But having maybe made some parents worried and concerned about what they can do, this is a self-help guidebook which actually will take you through what you can do if you really want to to learn about it. Or you can maybe go to your local library and rent it out. I'm I'm sure that they will have it. So the Times, it was a book of the year, and Bob Woodward from, that's Bob Woodward, Watergate Bob Woodward, he's compared my work to that of Rachel Carson, which is a great honor, because she founded the environmental movement. And she went up against the technology of her time, which was the agri-food industry and pesticides, and she spoke about silent spring. What would happen that when the use of pesticides was so much that there was a silent spring and no birds were singing and no, you know, the, the, no insects were, were chirping or clashing around the place? Well, I would like to, everybody to think about what happens when we have a silent spring in cyberspace, when the place is so polluted by this content that nothing good can grow or thrive there. So what we want to try and do is move towards the greater good. Pope Francis said, immense technological development has not been accompanied by a development in human responsibilities, values, and conscience. That is an opportunity for the church to actually inform those values in cyberspace. Remember, the internet was founded on the premise that all users are equal. Well, unfortunately, this is not true Some are more vulnerable than others. So what we need to do is work together towards technology for the greater good. And I'm going to take questions because we've got about 10 or 15 minutes left. But before I take questions, I'd just like to read you a short extract from my book. It's one of my favorite passages from the book because it sums up where I think we are heading with technology. We are living through an exciting moment in history when so much about life is being transformed. But what is new is not always good and technology does not always mean progress. We desperately need some balance in an era of hell-bent cyber utopianism. There are those of us who remember the world and life before the internet are a vital resource. We know what we used to be, who we were, who we are, and what our values are. We are the ones who can rise to the responsibility of directing and advising the adventure ahead. It's like that moment before you go on a trip, and you are heading out the door with your luggage, and you check the house one more time to see that you've got everything you need. In human terms, do we have everything we need for this journey? At this moment in time, we can describe cyberspace as a place separate from us, but very soon that distinction will become blurred. By the time we get into the 2020s, when we are alone and immersed in our smart homes and smarter cars, clad in our wearable technologies, our babies in captivity seats with iPads thrust into our visual field, our kids all wearing face-obscuring helmets, when our sense of self has fractured into a dozen different social network platforms, when sex is something that requires logging in and a password, when we are competing for our lives with robots for jobs and dark thoughts and forces have pervaded, syndicated and colonized cyberspace. We might wish we'd paid more attention. As we set out on this journey into the first quarter of the 21st century, what do we have now that we cannot afford to lose. Thank you for your time.
0: So again, we want to thank Dr. Mary Aiken for presenting that um, very informative talk at the World Meeting of Families entitled Turning Technology to the Greater Good. I hope listeners uh, got something from it. If you want to listen back to it again, you can uh, log on to our our blog, sacredspace102.blogspot.com or you can also um, go on to the web and by googling World Meeting of Families 2018 and you'll be able to get Dr. Mary's talk and indeed all the talks including the one we played last week by Cardinal um, Cardinal Tago So now it brings us to the end of the uh, program for this week. Hopefully we'll be returning to normal next week when Shane will be joining us and hopefully Lorraine So until next week. God bless you all now Bye Sacred Space